peace this morning. Peace is a word that appears a lot in your Bible. In the Old and New Testament, it's mentioned uh, at least 347 times uh, in the ESV. So uh, the Bible has a lot to say about peace and much that we could say this morning. But for our purposes, we will define peace as uh, the inner rest, a confidence, and an experience of God's goodness towards you. That peace is not simply an absence of conflict, but rather it is a presence of wholeness, flourishing, and completeness in all areas and parts of our life. And so we'll read Galatians 5, 22 and 23, uh, but we'll spend most of our time this morning uh, in Numbers 6, verses 22 to 27. So let's read our text and then we will pray. Hear God's word to us this morning from Galatians 5 and Numbers 6. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then from Numbers 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Let's pray. O Lord, you are our keeper and our provider. We pray that this morning that you would open your word to us and that you would open us to the wonders of your word. And we pray this morning for Alan and Sally Carter as they move uh, to Portland this week, that you would keep them, provide for them, sustain them in every way, and that you would use them for the glory of your name uh, in Portland, whatever uh, lies ahead, whatever uh, you have in store for them as they go. And so, Lord, now we ask that you would work in us that which is pleasing and glorifying to you. And so hear us, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the things we miss as we read Galatians 5 is that the second person pronouns that Paul uses are all plural. That this book is written to y'all and not to you. This is written to a church, to a group of people. And so I think there is a sense in which we need to consider the fruit of the Spirit not only growing in the life of an individual, but also growing in the life of church. The nature of fruit assumes community. How am I to be loving unless there is someone to love? How am I to be at peace if there is no one with whom to make peace? We tend to think fruit of the Spirit, we think individually. And I think that is primarily what Paul is speaking of, but I don't think it is out of bounds to consider that Paul is envisioning this fruit developing in the life of a congregation or as a church as a whole. And so keep that in mind as we work our way through this passage. And so as we think about peace, I want to consider it in three parts. First, the absence of peace. Second, uh, the declaration of peace. And then thirdly, the expression of peace. So first, consider the absence of peace. As I said before, peace is that inner rest confidence and experience of God's goodness towards you. Not simply an absence of conflict, but rather a presence of wholeness, flourishing, and completeness 
in all of life. As you think about that, does that describe your life? Does that describe the world around you? We look around at our own lives and we know that this is not our experience. At least it's not my experience, on, especially on weeks in which I am scheduled to preach, my life seems anything but peaceful. I also have a six-week-old at home and a three- and a six-year-old, so life is anything but peaceful these days. Do you have this peace in your own life and heart? Do you have an inner rest, a serenity, and a confidence that goes beyond circumstances. If we're honest, we would say we don't. We are people who are filled with anxiety. We are people who are depressed. We are people who are consumed with worry, with fear. We are burdened and troubled people. We are the wealthiest culture in the world. We are the most technologically advanced culture. We have the most disposable income with the most modern conveniences, and yet we still don't have any peace. We're always tired. We don't know how to rest. We're always busy, but yet find ourselves never content. We do not have the experience of what Paul was talking about in the fruit of the Spirit. And I realize that any time you bring up the topic of anxiety and depression, that we deal with a very complex and multifaceted topic. And anxiety and depression are not simply spiritual issues, and they're Are they simply a biochemical issue, nor are they simply an emotional or behavioral issue? God made us as whole, integrated beings, integrated in our body, mind, and spirit. And so we do people a disservice when we treat anxiety and depression as simply a spiritual or behavioral issue. The last thing that someone who is depressed needs to hear is that they shouldn't be depressed. They need to stop it or just have more faith or tell them that, They should just get over it. The last thing they need to hear, it's like the Bob Newhart skit that was on a a variety TV show uh, a few years ago now. Bob Newhart plays a counselor in which uh, he only charges $5 for a five-minute session, and he guarantees results. And so the skit begins, and a woman comes into his office and explains the story of how she has this over overwhelming fear of being buried, about, buried alive in a box. And so his response to her is, stop it. And then she explains, well, she has an eating disorder. And he yells, stop it. She then describes the pattern of self-destructive behaviors and damaging relationships in which she's in. To that, she yells, he yells, stop it. Over and over to all of her uh, problems, he just yells, stop it. It's funny. It's a funny skit to us because it rings true with a lot of pain that all of us have experienced. It rings true because we know it in our own experience. Because we've all been told to stop it. And we wish that it was just that easy. If we could, we would. But we are people who are without peace. And just yelling, stop it, will not help us. It will not change anything in us. And further, as we talk about peace, let's not confuse peace with aloofness. 
with apathy or with indifference. The point of peace is not that we stop caring altogether. It's not that we would check out of life mentally and emotionally and just kind of exist. But rather, what peace presents us with is how can we face a complex and a broken world with an inner confidence, poise, and gracefulness? What Paul is telling us is that we need something that is given to us, that, w- that the, the fruit of peace is not native or natural to us. We need something that we cannot muster ourselves, that we cannot create. But the absence of peace is not just internal. It doesn't just reside within our own hearts and minds. It's external to us as well. We live in divided times. It's no wonder we are filled with anxiety. We are angry at everyone. Just watch the news. Check social media. And depending upon your political leaning, they can tell you who you are to be angry with today, who you are to be outraged with today. Even in a church that can look as homogenous as a place like this, if you bring up certain topics, it can get pretty awkward pretty quickly. Just think about this next week in KC. Talk about, what do you think about NFL players kneeling for the national anthem? What do you think about our nation's immigration policy? Does anyone want to talk about that at a dinner party this week? What about detaining children of undocumented immigrants, separating them from their parents? That seems to be the hot topic this week. What about the moral qualifications of our leaders? Does that matter? Has it ever mattered to us? What about black lives matter versus blue lives matter? We could go on and on. We are divided. How can we coexist? How can we live in a world in which we can't seem to agree on much of anything? In a world where we have an ever-escalating desire to express outrage and indignation with anyone who disagrees with our point of view, how do we coexist without killing each other? Elizabeth Brunig is a columnist for the Washington Post, and a few weeks ago she wrote a column entitled... We are no longer capable of forgiving our enemies. The article was written in the wake of scandals involving two Hollywood stars, Roseanne Barr and Samantha Bee, who are on totally opposite ends of the political spectrum. Yet within days, they both made incredibly inappropriate public comments. And this striking outrage from both sides, both the left and the right, were up in arms. Everyone is calling for resignations and firings. And so in this context, Brunig writes, and speaking of our inability to forgive, she writes this. If forgiveness had a face, it would be hideous to us now. To the degree that beauty is a matter of socially constructed taste, we wouldn't be able to look at forgiveness without revulsion. Forgiveness means having the technical right to exact some penalty, but electing not to pursue it. This breaks the cycle of retribution with unearned, undeserved mercy. The face of forgiveness is bruised because it bears its own injuries with grace. So doing permits the cycle of retribution to go no further. It is a hard thing but necessary if huge numbers of strangers are going to live peacefully together. How can we live at peace 
Brunig hits at the core of the issue. Peace cannot exist apart from forgiveness. Peace cannot exist apart from one bearing his or her own injuries with grace. So we live in a world absent of peace, both internally and externally. But how is it that we see the fruit of peace grow in us by the power of the Spirit? That brings us to our second point, the declaration of peace. If we don't have peace, then how is it that we get it? If peace is not something that you or I can just drum up, if it's not something that we can create, if it's not something in which we can just summon the will to create, then peace is something that must be declared to us. It's not something that that can be created, but something that must be conferred or declared upon us. And so look at our passage in Numbers 6. And while you probably don't hear many sermons from the book of Numbers, um, this is probably the most famous passage uh, in the entire book. Here, Moses, uh, the writer of uh, the book of Numbers, gives us the ironic benediction, the benediction uh, for Aaron. And it was the, these were the words that Aaron and his sons, the priest, were to speak to the people. Uh, and you see that in verse 22. And so at the end of every service, the priest would raise his hands and would say these words to the people who were gathered. And so the point was that on the basis of what had happened in the service uh, that they were a part of, that on the basis of this, what had happened in the service, that they were now at peace with God. Because the animals were sacrificed on the altar, because their blood was shed in your place, the priest declared to them that they were at peace with God. And so he would give them these good words. He would give them, that's what benediction means, he would give them good words from God. And something similar goes on each week at our service. You are reminded at the end of the service that because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus that you are at peace with God. And so we close with a benediction. Some of us open our hands. This might seem a little uncomfortable. You might think these people have been normal the entire time and now they get weird uh, because what are they doing? And Do we do this just because we need a convenient way to end our service? Do we do this as just a way to close the conversation? I can remember when I was in college, I worked in a church in another denomination, and each week we had a closing prayer at the end of the service, and it seemed really perfunctory to me. It seemed just kind of like something needed that we, at the end of the service, and half of the prayer ended up being just a recap of the major points of the pastor's sermon, and half was a prayer of intercession that we would beat the Methodist uh, to Piccadilly for lunch. Um, But you knew that if on Thursday, if you were in the office and the pastor's uh, admin buzzed your office, that you were it for the week, that you were the closing prayer guy uh, for uh, that week. But is that what we're doing in this service? Is that or why we do this, is, is this just a perfunctory exercise at the end of the service? It is not. Uh, the benediction is not just a well-wish from God, but rather it is a declaration from the mouth of God. The benediction is not as much a prayer as it is a pronouncement. It is not what we hope is true. It is what God has declared to be true. The benediction is not an if-then proposition for us. If you behave this week, then these things will be true of you. 
If you keep your end of the bargain, then you will be at peace with God. The benediction is God's good word to you. When you leave a service, when you leave one of our services each week, what we want you to leave knowing is that if you are in Christ, you are at peace with God, that your sins are forgiven, and that you leave in peace. So let's look at a few, for a few moments at this benediction that is given to us, to us. It's divided into three lines. The first line is, the Lord bless you and keep you. We throw the word bless around a lot. God bless you, bless her heart. Will you ask a blessing for the food? Well, what you're doing when you say that, and, and our, the way we use the word bless is that we wish good things on that person. We wish someone well. What we are saying is that we desire for that person to prosper and to thrive. But blessing in the Bible is so much more than just a well wish. It's so much more than just, I hope this happens to you. So Moses is writing to us saying, you have the blessing and protection of God. Moses is saying that God is committed to your well-being, that God is committed to your good. The blessing of God means that he is committed to your good no matter what. That he is your keeper, that he will protect and preserve you. You hear echoes of our call to worship in this benediction from Psalm 121. Six times in Psalm 121, we hear that the Lord is our keeper, that he will keep you. We see we have the protection of God. But the second and third lines are, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. What does it mean that we have, what does it mean that we have the face of God or the countenance of God shining Upon us. It means more than just that we have God's presence with us. It means to have God's face means that we have the intimacy and the connection and the delight of God. You have God's attention and His affection. Have you ever been in a meeting with someone and they were constantly looking at their phone? Or now they're constantly looking at their watch because their watch is now connected to their phone? Or you're at a restaurant, and above your head is a TV, and there's a game on. And every sentence or so, they're going to look up and check the score of uh, what's going on on TV above you. You know, you're present with them. You are in the same room as that person. You share the same space, but you do not have their face. You, do, you don't have them, we would say. They are divided. They're half interested in what's going on with you and half interested in what's going on with their phone. But think of a wedding ceremony. Think of a bride and groom face-to-face making vows to one another. They're not looking at their phones, but there is an intensity and an intimacy that they share. And that's a picture of what we see here. God declares to you that you have his shining face upon you. God declares to you that you have his delight. He declares to you that you are his joy. And that you are his beloved. And I just want to press pause there for a second. And to let that sink in to us for a moment. Because of what Jesus has done, because we trust in him, God declares to you that you have the shining face of God. 
that you have the smiling countenance of God upon you. You have the delight and the love of your Creator. If I asked you, what do you think about Donald Trump? I'm not interested in what you would say, but rather I'm interested in what your face would look like. If I asked you, what do you think about Donald Trump, would you smile? Would your eyes gleam with pride and devotion for our president? If I asked you the question, would you roll your eyes and have a look of indifference and apathy? Or would your face turn red and your nostrils flare with anger and disdain? Your face would tell me what you thought about him. If you were to ask God, God, what do you think about me? What do you think God's face would look like if you ask him that question? If you're like me, you live most of your life believing that when God thinks of you, when your name comes up, that he's either disinterested or disdained. He's disinterested. He's mildly upset with you all the time. He's just kind of annoyed with you, and he just puts up with your presence. And it's going to go on like that for all of eternity. Or it's disdain that when your name comes up, that God has a threatening face towards you. That if that guy just messes up one more time, he's out of there. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him, you have the delight and the smile of God upon you. When God looks at you, he is delighted He is pleased. You are connected to him. You are attached to him. You are united to him. When he looks at you, he is pleased with what he sees. How many of our ills and our woes would be soothed if we really believe this? What confidence, what assurance would we possess? Could we endure the frowns and disapproval of those around us? if we really believe that we had his smile. You know, this sounds great. We have the smile of God, but how can it be true? How can a holy God smile upon me? You know, after all that I have done, after all of the people to whom this is written, after all that they had done, how is it that God can smile upon us? Remember that this is Moses writing, and Moses was on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, And he said, God, would you show me your glory? God, let me see your glory. What was God's response? You cannot see my face and live. No man can see me and live. And so God hid Moses in a rock, and he passed over him so that Moses would only see a glimpse of his backside as the glory of the Lord passed by. And so this same Moses is writing, In Numbers 6, how can this be? How can the face of God be turned toward sinful people? How can you have God's smiling face upon you after all you've done, after all the ways that you have broken His commandments? The answer for them is the same answer that we have. By faith, God imputed righteousness to them by means of a sacrifice. By faith... God imputed righteousness to them by means of a sacrifice. By their faith, 
These people took God at his word. They received and rested upon the promises of God. And, and because of their faith, God imputed to them, he reckoned to them, he credited to them righteousness. But what does it mean that he imputed righteousness to them? He declared them to be righteous even though they were anything but righteous. They remained unholy and unrighteous in themselves, but he treated them as if they were righteous by the means of a sacrifice. The sacrifice was treated as they were to be treated. And the same is true of us. God imputes righteousness to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. We are the same as them. We are anything but righteous. That's what we come and we do every week as we gather. We admit that we are unholy and unrighteous, but we receive God's forgiveness because through Christ, God treats us as if we were righteous and holy. Christ was treated as we were to be treated, and we are treated as he was to be treated. We are given the righteousness, holiness, and perfection of Christ, and he gets the punishment for our sin, disobedience, and rebellion. We are given the smile of God because he received the frown of his Father on the cross. We are accepted because he was rejected in our place. It's what we confessed in our new city catechism question this morning. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and will remember our sins no more. And just to answer a question that this uh, section of the sermon bags. Yes, those who belong to God do experience his fatherly displeasure, as our confession, our, the Westminster Confession states. But that even in the experience of his fatherly displeasure, that comes from the Father's loving heart towards us. That comes from his desire and his commitment for our good. That God is loving towards us. And to not be loving towards us at any point in this life or in the life to come would be to deny his own promises. It would be to deny the perfect work of his son on our behalf. Imputation means that you are treated as something that you are not and that in yourself you will never be in this life. It is Romans 5.1, our assurance of pardon this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imputation is a declaration from God. It is not something that we earn or attain. How could we earn or attain something that is a declaration of what we are not? Moses knew what we must know, that if God's face is to be shining upon us, if God's countenance is going to be lifted upon us, that it must be by grace and it cannot be by our work. So how does the fruit of peace grow in us? It grows as we remember and as we receive the declaration from God that we are at peace with him through faith in Jesus Christ. That we are counted righteous even though we are not. That we are loved even though we are not loving. We are given what we do not deserve. And so to the one here this morning... You might be here this morning and you would profess faith in Jesus, but you would say, I'm struggling. You would say, Lord, I believe, but help my 
unbelief. To the Christian who is anxious, who doubts, God, do you really love me? God, are you really committed to me? Are you really there? To the one who is struggling in sin, and you wonder, am I ever going to get over this? Am I ever going to be able to stop this sin? Will you hear again that you have the smiling face of God? Will you receive and believe that you are loved, that you are safe in the hand of God, that nothing in this life and nothing in the life to come will ever be able to separate you from the love that he has for you in Christ? You may experience the frowning disapproval of the people around you. And the loudest voice of disapproval that you experience might be the one inside your own head. The biggest frown you receive is not from those around you, but from the face in the mirror. But will you hear again and receive again the words of comfort and peace that are declared to you by our Savior Jesus? When he invites you to come to him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he promises to give you rest. We also remember that God so loved the world that he gave his son for you, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. The peace of God is free to all who would trust in Jesus. And so to this point, we've considered the absence of peace and the declaration of peace. Finally, very quickly, let's consider the expression of this peace. If we are declared at peace with God through faith in Jesus, how does this seek How does this help us as we seek to live at peace with those around us? Or to put it another way, how does the gospel help me to live in a culture like this, a divided and polarized culture? The gospel allows you to give what you have received. Not perfectly and not not fully in the exact same way, but understanding that God has made peace with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus can help you as you seek to live at peace. We'll talk about this more next week with the fruit of patience, but think about imputation again. God treating us as we are not, reckoning to us a record of righteousness even though we are not. Even after we've messed it up, even after we have run away from God, even after we have uh, righteously deserved God to throw the book at us, he treats us as, as if we were as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. The gospel is Jesus bearing his own injuries with grace, to quote the article from earlier. And the gospel is what enables us to express peace to others by not treating them as they deserve. In a sense, we are imputing grace to them when they deserve anything but grace. What will allow you to live at peace with those around you? What will allow you to live with people that you just you can't seem to find any middle ground with? What allows you to live with people who have sinned against you? The only thing that will allow you to live at peace and to be at peace is imputation and forgiveness. Receiving it from God and by the grace of God, giving it to others. Giving to them what they don't deserve because you have been given what you don't deserve. And so as we come to the table this morning, we have a beautiful picture, and we have a reminder 
of the peace of God. In our sins and disobedience, we deserved wrath. We deserved the punishment of God, but we are given grace. We deserved, we deserved to be alone, left alone for all of eternity. But God welcomes us to his table. We deserve to be alone, but we are given a seat at the heavenly banquet, at this table. In a beautiful, beautiful way, we are given a picture where we are reminded that in Christ we are given what we do not deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit that you would help us to believe and to receive what is true about us in Christ. That because of his sacrifice for us, that we are declared righteous. And so help 